Well, it's a wonderful blessing to be here with you all. I uh, know that there's many of you I don't know well, and I would love to, I wish I had time to just sit down with each one of you and get to get to know your heart a little bit more. Um, <clears throat> unfortunately, I'm going to have to leave this afternoon and head back home, and it's going to be short, but hopefully sweet uh, to be here with you today. I think about this message, I'm wondering if I'm going to be emphasizing the right things. And so I'll just offer you the loaves and fishes that I have. Um, And as I think of just sitting here before the service and thinking about, well, how's this going to come across? Is it going to sound very critical? Because um, I'm going to be sharing some things that maybe are some of the things that are wrong with us. (laughs) Uh, You know, anybody, and I love our people. I love our church. And it seems like um, sometimes people sort of, maybe they withdraw themselves in their heart from the church and they just start getting critical. And uh, anybody can can tell you what's wrong with it. Now, who are the ones who are going to step up and say, well, now this is what we're going to do to fix it? And as I think about this message, I'm like, well, is that all I'm doing today? I'm going to talk about what I think is wrong with it, some of the pressures. And uh, I guess you're going to have to go home and figure out what you're going to do with that. Because um, I don't have all the solutions. I'm reminded of a little story that I, I heard recently of a lady that approached D.L. Moody and told him that she didn't like the way that he did evangelism. And his response was, well, I don't like the way I do evangelism either. How do you do it? And she said, well, I don't do it. And he said, well, I like the way I, don't, that the way I do it better than the way that you don't do it. And uh, so I'm not sure I know exactly how to do it. But I do believe that this issue of cultural pressures is very real and it is very relevant to us today. I hope as we consider this subject and later return to our home communities that we would wrestle with these things and ask the Lord, is there something that I need to do in response to this? in my home community, in my church. As Mennonites, we have always been concerned about the influence of the culture around us and how it may affect our Christian lives. Is this a valid concern? And I think we would all agree here today, yes, it is. In fact, I think it's a salvation issue. In the book of James, it says that if we are a friend of the world, then we become the enemy of God. But not only do we face pressure from the culture without, sometimes I think we face pressure from, the, from our own Mennonite culture. Um, and the result can be a stumbling block to my brothers and sisters in the church and a poor testimony in the communities that we live in. So I'm concerned about both of those things. And I'm not sure I can marry those together in, in thinking about this today. But I think we face pressures from without and there's some pressures within that we ought to take a look at. <coughs> Probably the fastest way we can testify about Jesus is our words. That would be the fastest way. Probably the fastest way we can turn people away from Jesus is our testimony. And so that's why I think our testimony in our community is our culture. You know what? It leaves a certain smile in the community, doesn't it? And that's why our testimony is so vital so that it will leave the right smell. And instead of being affected or infected by the culture that we're, we're, affecting, we're infecting the culture. That's the way it's supposed to be. <clears throat> I'd like for us to consider three questions, or four questions, this morning. Now, the first one is, what are some of the worldly cultural pressures we face in this country and our generation? And secondly, have we been influenced by these pressures? Third question is, what is the biblical antidote to these pressures? And then fourthly, I have one little idea, if we have time. I'm not sure if I'm going to get too long-winded and, uh, and be able to get to this. But if we have time, okay, what are we supposed to do about it? What to do about it? I have one idea that I want to share with you for you to uh, tear apart and decide if it's any value to it. Um, <clears throat> Turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 6. This is the text that was assigned to me for this message in this morning. <clears throat> Cultural pressures. 
Now, this text here today is, it basically is talking about money. It's talking about materialism. And that's one of the big ones that I want to, I want to talk about later. But I also want to look at a few other things. Um, so let's read. By the way, if somebody would have time to bring a glass of water up here, I, when I get nervous, I get really dry. So I might need to, somebody to bail me out. <clears throat> Thank you. First Timothy 6, and let's begin reading in verse 3. If any man teach otherwise, and consent not to wholesome words, even the words of our Lord Jesus Christ, and to the doctrine which is according to godliness, he is proud, knowing nothing, but doting about questions and strifes of words, whereof cometh envy, strife, railings, evil surmisings. You know, isn't that interesting? You look down here a little bit later and it says, the love of money, the root of all evil, this, these roots that are going out into all kinds of weird places. Would it result in this? Verse 4. And then in verse 5. Perverse disputings of men, of corrupt minds, and destitute of the truth, supposing that gain is godliness. <clears throat> From such, withdraw thyself. Thank you, brother. <clears throat> but godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into this world, and it is certain we can carry Nothing out. And having food and raiment, let us be therewith content. But they that will be rich fall into temptation and a snare and into many foolish and hurtful lusts which drown men in destruction and perdition. For the love of money is the root of all evil, which while some coveted after, they have erred from the faith and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. But thou, O man of God, flee these things and follow after righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, meekness, fight the good fight of faith, lay hold on eternal life, Whereunto thou art called, and hast professed a good profession before many witnesses. I give thee charge in the sight of God, who quickeneth all things, and before Christ Jesus, who before Pontius Pilate witnessed a good confession, that thou keep this commandment without spot, unrebukable, until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now drop down to verse 17. Charge them that are rich. That's all of us. Charge them that are rich in this world, that they be not high-minded, nor trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God who giveth us richly all things to enjoy, that they do good, that they be rich in good works, ready to distribute, willing to communicate, laying up in store for themselves a good foundation against the time to come, that they may lay hold on eternal life. <clears throat> when Paul wrote this letter to Timothy, understand that Timothy was in Ephesus and in the first chapter of this book, Paul says, I want you to stay there. And so <clears throat> there was a, a, a baby church that was started in a Gentile city. And I would think of it as a first generation Christian culture in the midst of the, the, the very ungodly culture around them. And I would imagine that this new little Christian culture was the minority in the city. <clears throat> and I see possibly in this now, this little Christian culture, this new baby church, I see possibly two camps of people in the church. The first one is in verse 8. Um, those that only had food and raiment. It says, let us. Let us. So when Paul's writing, he's talking about, you know, all of us in this church here. Let us. The majority, I would think. Um, <clears throat> it's okay that you don't have all the stuff that all the other people have. That's okay. In fact, just let us have just food and raiment, the bare basics, the basic needs of life. Let's, let's just be okay with that. Let us. 
And then there's another camp, and I would, I'm imagining it's probably the minority down in verse 17. And that is, charge them. So there's the us, and there's the them. There's some that apparently were in the church. I mean, I would assume this instruction was given to, to Christian people in verse 17 and not to the ungodly. And it's to the Christians, and he's saying, okay, if you, if you find yourself where you have, you have wealth, then <clears throat> here's some instruction for you. So there's the us. Uh, I think of it as a majority. And there's the them, the minority. And then there's another category. Worthy in the church. I'm not sure. But that's the they in verse 9. We have us, them, and verse 9 says they. They that will be rich. <clears throat> and what's, I guess what's scary about this issue is we are all in the them category, I think. I don't think any of us here are in the us category. We're in the them. We are, we are the ones that are, that are wealthy. And can we, can we avoid the snares that verse 9 and, and 10 speak about and not fall into the they camp? It scares me when I hear our people saying things sort of like, you know, these things, they don't mean anything to me. <laughs> you know, if they were taken away, fine with me. But they keep all their stuff. They still have all the stuff. And besides, it's not how much you have. It's not the, the things. It's the love of money. So, so therefore, I'm free. And somehow I take the Scripture and I bend it around and turn it around. And, and guess what the Scripture says? It's, it's just what I'm doing right now. That's exactly what the Bible says. Here I am. I'm right in alignment with the Scripture. And I look at verse 3 there and it says, Any man, if he would not consent to wholesome words. And especially if we look at the Gospels, which I think the rest of the New Testament could be built upon the foundation of the four Gospels. That's, that's kind of my view. Because Jesus' words are so simple and they're not hard to understand. And they're wholesome words. And it says there, If any man teach other words, consent not to wholesome words, even the words of our Lord Jesus Christ. <clears throat> and could we in this culture in surrounded by affluence and, and, and even within our own circles you know we are not known for being verse 8 are we? what is our testimony in the community? we are known not for being food and raiment and therewith content like some of those people in India maybe we're not known for that we're known for doing okay. We're known for being frugal and we're known for being good workers and good savers and, and, and uh, making a good living. And that's what we're known for. We're known for being honest, hopefully. Could it be? The way this works, as I see it in verse 9 and 10, there's just a deception. And that man that is talking about in verse 3, I mean, here is this, it's chilling really to think that someone <clears throat> says in verse 5 there that he could think that gain is godliness. Like that Christianity would be the means of gain. I don't think any of us believe that. I hope we don't believe that. Uh, like the health and wealth, uh, the prosperity gospel. So why don't you come to Christ and, you know, you're going to, God wants you to be rich. Pretty sure we don't believe that. Or that, or that um, wealth would be the, the proof of my Christianity. See? Um, since I'm wealthy, then that verifies that I'm really, um, <clears throat> a, really a, a, a genuine Christian. But sometimes I think we might believe this one, just a little bit, this third possibility, that the ease, the plenty, the comfort that I have are the right or the result of good Christian living. We've lived in these communities so long. Okay, I grew up in the hills of Virginia, so I'm still kind of a hillbilly, but I live in, in, in northern Indiana that, that's a wealthy community, okay? I'll confess that. That's where I'm living right now. In one of those big Mennonite communities. <clears throat> and it just seems like we've lived this way so long, we begin to think that this is normal. 
This is the way I think everybody does it. And you know, if you're a good Christian and you, you go to church and you put your money in the offering and you know what, God's just going to, you're going to have all your, your needs and you're going to have most of your wants and, and uh, you'll have some even to give away. <clears throat> just live a good Christian life and this is, this will be, this is what you'll get out of it. We would never say those words, but sometimes I wonder, do we believe that? I mean, we live that way. I heard some time ago the testimony of someone who was comparing the testimony of an American businessman, Christian businessman, and a a Chinese Christian businessman. The American man said, before I knew Jesus, I had nothing. My marriage was on the rocks. My business was falling apart. I barely had two dimes to rub together. And then I found the Lord. And I got my life straightened out and my business came back. My wife came back and now... Things are going well. My business is prospering. And praise God. Well, that's a good testimony. If, if, this, if that was really genuine, that's a good testimony. But the Chinese businessman said, Before I knew Jesus, I had everything. I had a good business. I had everything. I had money. And after I met Christ, I lost everything. Our comforts that we have, I'm not going to say they're sin, but I don't think they're our, our right to expect that we can just have this. This deception that it's speaking about, this whole thing is, this root of evil, it begins in deception, where we think that, you know, we have these things, but they don't have me. And what is the result of that begins in deception? What happens after that? It says they veer from the path. Verse 10. They err from the faith. And there's like a spiritual suicide that it speaks about in verse 10. It says they pierce themselves through. Pierce themselves. And in the end, it leads to perdition, it says. That word perdition just means the destruction which consists in the loss of eternal life. And what scares me is that we are the them in verse 17. Can we really, in our communities, in our churches, can we really go through this minefield of affluence that we live in and not be burned and not some of our people? That's where they're at in their hearts. Probably none of us feel like we're not guilty of the love of money, the will to be. You know, it's not the it's not the having of the money; it's the will to to have it, the love of it. And by the way, that that where it says the the uh, the love of money is the root of all evil. Another translation says it's a root of all kinds of evil. And I think that's more the meaning there, where things that you think it's not connected to money and yet something it's like crabgrass it just starts here but it grows up and comes up way over here and what would be the root way down at the bottom it would be it's the love of money so it's not it doesn't say money is the root but it says the love of and so we don't tend to think of ourselves as being guilty of these things and so we look at our motive and say do I have that do I love money okay no I don't think I love money Good. And I go on about my life. <clears throat> but I wonder if what we ought to be looking at is not so much at my inner motive. I get confused when I look at my motives. Sometimes, I'm, where is my heart? I don't know where it's at. But, but what about what am I doing? <laughs> Maybe that would be a better weather vane to be looking at than trying to discern all the motivations of my heart. <clears throat> I would like now to just look at um, four areas that I see. I wonder if I'm missing all the most important ones. I don't know. But I'm going to give you four, just four, that I see, that I'm concerned about, that I have seen in our churches. Four areas of cultural pressure that we're facing. And I think each one of these, I don't know if I can describe this right, but each one of these pressures is sort of I feel like it's, you know, Satan is the captain of the culture, isn't he? 
And so we, we have to do with the culture. We drive their cars and we buy their shirts. And so we don't say we're not going to have anything to do with the culture. But we need to remember that. Watch out. Satan is the captain of the culture of this world. So therefore, even the things that seem are seemingly innocent, we need to be careful because of the captain. Anyway, I think Satan is very, he's very, he's very, um, I don't know if wise is the right word. Very cunning. And I think that each of these pressures, it will be designed to scratch a certain itch that my flesh has. My flesh has these certain itches. And, and, and guess what? He's got just the right tool. It'll reach back there, get just that itch, right in the middle of your back where you can't reach. And if you would just indulge in this pressure a little bit, it would scratch. Oh, just take care of that itch that you have. <clears throat> and so I think he has different targets. He's aiming at different itches and bringing these pressures in upon us. And uh, what do we do in response? Are we affected by these things? And the first one is, these all kind of rhyme, and I did this just to hopefully to help us to remember what they are. So I'm going to tell you what the four are, and then I'll explain what I mean, why I use these terms. The first one is accumulation. The second one is decoration. The third one is medication. I'm not talking about medicine, by the way, so relax if you're here on medication here this morning. Uh, <clears throat> Accumulation, decoration, medication, and the fourth one is fornication. Those four. I see Brother Felix back there. (laughs) God bless you, brother. Accumulation. I think this itch that Satan would be aiming at, it would be the itch of my flesh. My flesh wants to be comfortable. And uh, Brother Todd mentioned this last night. I I still remember you saying some of this at our church, Todd about uh, my comfort zone. And I, and, and I just love my comfort zone. It's true, I do. Um, I don't like to get out of my comfort zone. And so accumulation is, and I'm talking about money, and really that's what this text is. It's all focused around, it's mostly focused at money. What we do with our wealth. But so it would be the, the accumulating of money and what all it can buy. And what, is, what would that itch be? It, it's my comfort. I definitely want to scratch my comfort. I would like that itch to be taken care of. And maybe for older people, it's security. You know, I, what am I going to do when I can't work? And, you know, we need, to, we need to take care of ourselves. And besides, it says over in Proverbs about the ant, you know, and they, they lay up for themselves. And, and, uh, <clears throat> and so security is a big one. Why would I give in to this thing of accumulation <clears throat> and pleasure? Obviously, money can buy me pleasure. All these things that will, that will uh, scratch that itch of my flesh. Gary Miller says this. Some of you have probably read some of his books about finances. and um, He said in one of his books, I forget which one it was. Was it Life in a Global Village, maybe? That in 1914, 56% of a household's budget went for food and clothing, leaving only 44% left over for housing, transportation, and other needs. There was little left for extras. That's 100 years ago. Today, 100 years later, well, this was 2014, only 13% of our budget is needed for food and clothing, leaving a whopping 87% left over for other things. So I think one of the things that has changed is that we have a lot more discretionary income than we used to. I, I am not a financial wizard at all. <clears throat> but what I mean by discretionary is just the, you know, it's not needed for some bill. And, and, and all my bills are paid and the tithe is paid. And, and so I have this left over. And we just have more left over um, than we did 100 years ago. And I think we've, we've sometimes had the perception or the thought that, well, I have the right to use this discretionary income on myself. I've paid my tithe. And I've paid my bills. And, and so this is in that 87% that's left over, and so now I can accumulate. You know, some people, 
their tendency, the way they would sin with their money would be to spend, spend, spend. And to buy toys and whatever. Well, that's not my, the tendency of my flesh. My flesh is to be stingy. <laughs> and to save, save, save. And I can just look at all the other people that are spending and say, man, look at that guy. Look at all the stuff. I wonder what's in his heart. Look what he's spending on. And my pile in the bank is getting bigger and bigger. That's <clears throat> so there's two ditches <clears throat> with accumulation. And the truth is, let's be honest, none of us are living in verse 8. Is that, is verse 8 mean we're supposed to do what it says? <laughs> we're not there. And I think the truth is, we do have a lot of extras. I mean, verse 8 is talking about the basic needs. And I'm not, I am not here to tell you where, how many extras you can have, where the line is, you know. And I have extras. I have more than, verse, than what it says in verse 8. Now, I shared this message at home last Sunday, or part of it. And a brother, there was a visiting brother there, and he came to me afterwards and he said, you give me a lot to think about, but he said, I think it's a journey. Uh, he said, I just, I'm on a journey in this. And that's, that's exactly how I feel. Like, I go through this subject and I'm like, man, I'm not going to get there overnight, but I think there ought to be some change. Do I have the guts to do it? Or will I choose to just live on in my comfortable Mennonite lifestyle and, and, and at my level of accumulation, whatever that may be, and think that you know, this is normal. We've had these extras for so long. We're so used to it. We think of it as normal. <clears throat> Gary Miller's book again, Life in a Global Village. <clears throat> How many of you have read that book? Okay. A number of you have read that. <clears throat> and in that book, for the rest of you that haven't read it, you should read it. It's, it's, it's convicting. <laughs> it's challenging. And it's very simple. It's written almost on a child's level. Lots of pictures and graphs. And it's very interesting. But he... What he says, basically, his premise is like if you would take the population of the whole world and compress it down to 100 people, and then we would we'd put percentages to it, how many of those 100 would be white? How many of those would be uh, uh, 80 years old? How many of them would have a car? And uh, <clears throat> here's what he found. So if there would be 100 people here today, there's probably more than 100 here, but let's say there's 100 people here today. 60 of you would not have no access to a toilet. This is what's reality in the world. And, and, and we're so used to all the extras we have, we don't think of it that we think of us as the normal. But it's not normal. It's not normal. It's 60 of you would have no access to a toilet. 73 of you would have no access to toilet paper. 91 of you would not own a car. So only 9 of you here today would have a car. That's what's normal in the world. I can hardly believe that's true. I've lived in my sheltered uh, community for so long, all my life. He went on to say that lack of clean water, proper sanitation kills children at an estimated rate equivalent to a jumbo jet crashing every three hours. That's what's normal in the world. The way we're doing is not the norm. And I don't know. You know, if we, I, don't, I don't want to take Scripture out of context. I think we need to look at all of the Scriptures that have to do with money and wealth and how we ought to use it and, and, and make a full picture of it. And so what does verse 8 mean? Let us food and raiment. What does that mean? Well, we need to wrestle with that. But one thing I think for sure, that, and when I look back to the words of Jesus, when he talks about accumulation and wealth, one thing for sure he is saying, one principle that I think he is for sure saying, lay not up. For yourselves. Treasures. He that layeth up treasure for himself is not rich toward God. Accumulation. This is an area, the the culture has always been doing it. They've already been doing it. And I think it is pressing in upon us. And maybe especially in our larger Mennonite communities, where the access to money is, is 
so prevalent. But I think it affects all of us, no matter where you live. Accumulation, that's the first one. The second one, I called it decoration. What I'm talking about is my appearance, my personal appearance, the way that I dress, my car, my house, whatever it is that you can see about me on the outside before you even know what's in my heart. What smell would somebody in my community get from my identity? I think this itch that Satan would be aiming at is my identity. The, the, the temptation to decorate those things. You know, the culture has always had problems with putting on and putting off. Okay? Like they take too many clothes off. Right? They're immodest. We, we don't go there. Hopefully, we're not going there. Uh, sometimes some of the clothes I see among us are too tight. So they're not modest, but they do cover... That's another subject. The world has always taken off too much. But you know what? They're also putting on too much. They're decorating themselves. And there's a principle in 1 Peter 3 that talks about that. It's adorning. And if you look up that word, I just studied that a little bit, 1 Peter 3, some time ago. And it gives me the idea, at least like a Christmas tree. You bring, cut this tree down and put it into your living room and you start, deco- you start hanging these ornaments. That's what this adorning is, is talking about. The tree is fine just by itself. But you start adding on these, these, these ornaments. And so the world, the culture around us is already doing that too. They're painting themselves. They're driving their cool cars. And guess one thing they're doing right now is they're covering themselves with tattoos. Has anyone noticed this? And I met a, I met a man um, a few weeks ago. And I, I told him, I said, you know, I'm going to be giving this talk. And to me, I, I thought, well, why do people tattoo? Why is that such an explosion of that today? And I think it has something, my, I settled on this thought. I think it has something to do with identity. Without me ever having to speak to you, I'm telling you who I am when I put on this tattoo. It's the same itch, folks, that we are facing in our houses, with our clothing, in our cars. It is the same itch. This spring, this past spring... Um, I was able to make a trip with uh, somebody else down to Belize for an ordination. Brother John was there. Brother John Miller was there. The deacon ordination at United Christian Mission in Belize. And the night of the ordination, Brother Hudell, I, I can't say his last name, but his first name is Hudell. He's a black man. Um, and he preached a very powerful message that night. I think he's the bishop of their church. Second generation um, <clears throat> Belusian. And I was really impressed with his sermon. And after the message, I approached him and I said, Dudell, what would you say is maybe the number one thing you're concerned about? And I was kind of getting at cultural pressures. I didn't use that term. What, what would be one of the, the number one thing that you're concerned about uh, that, that's pressuring your church, the churches here in Belize? And he said, well, um, he said, our ladies are, are how did he say it? I just have to put it in my own words, the thought that I remember. But the idea was about decorative dress for the sisters and how they're not willing. Uh, it's hard for them to stay with the plain dress like, like, like would have been introduced to them when the church was founded. Oh, wow, that's interesting. This, this issue is not just up here in the USA because I see that in the U.S. I see some of our clothing that really, I call it decorative dress. It's not really anything to do with modesty. It's not really covering up to conceal my body. It's not really to do with weather to stay warm, but it's just simply um, scarves and color-coordinated clothing that it's just decorating. And what about the men? Now, we as men tend to, you know, we wear our stuffy old clothes again and again, and we don't care about that, but we might be decorating something else. Some time ago, I was away from home preaching, and one night before church, I was invited somewhere, and uh, there was a man who had built a new house, 
and he asked me when I got there, would, would you like me to show you through the house? And I said, sure. And so he began to take me through the house. And as I walked through the house, my heart just sank and sank. The luxury, the decoration. I didn't want to preach that night. And after the service that night, I, I was... The preacher that I was staying with, I was staying at his house, and I was like, Brother, haven't you read 1 Timothy 6, 17 or 18? 17. No, 18. No, it's 17. I'm sorry. Charge them that are rich, brother. Come on. What are you doing about this? Do you know what? We face that. Some of these things happen in our churches, and you know what? We don't know what to do about it. There's a little bit of decoration going on. There's a little bit of accumulation going on. We don't know what to do about it. What should we do about this? It doesn't smell right. There was a brother that I know of who bought a... I'm just going to say this. I, I feel like I see... One thing that I see in our churches is we've become more flashy... And we've become more luxurious than we were 50 years ago. That's what I think I see. And I think it's decoration. And I think it's scratching at that identity itch. You know, and we're, we're, what we're doing is we're saying, well, I'm not immodest. I'm still covering. It's a pressure from the culture. They've always been doing it. And now, I don't know, it just seems like we're caving in. And we're not sure what to do about it. This is not a kingdom culture. This is not a trait of the kingdom of God. That is disal- it's disallowed in the kingdom of God. Because 1 Peter 3 says, Whose adorning let it not be that outward, but let it be the hidden man of the heart. There was a man I know of who bought a Mercedes SUV. And I just, oh, right away, my heart froze. I thought, oh, no, don't do that. And then I heard, and I didn't have the guts to talk to him about it. And I heard that he told someone else that he got it on eBay and it was flood damage. I forget what all the reasons were. I mean, there was a justification for it. In other words, he was saying, you know, my money was pure and I didn't overspend. And I thought, wait a minute, what about the testimony? Are you really going to drive past my house and hang a sign on the top of your roof that says, by the way, I bought it on eBay, flood damage. You know, my son, when he saw that, he's like, now I would really like to have a Mustang, Dad. And look at that Mercedes. It doesn't make sense. And you know what? He's right. It doesn't make sense. <clears throat> Decoration. Number three, I said, was medication. And what I'm talking about there is the, I call it the tidal wave of visual media, internet, movies, social networking. It's my amusement, my stimulation of the imagination itch. Amuse means not to think, right? And, 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 and what is, what the culture loves to do is take time out and not think and be at the ball games and be at, you know, be at the movies and your mind checks out and like somebody said, you know, there's, there's this family, they're sitting there watching a movie and, and the child comes up and says, Daddy, Daddy, just a minute, just a minute, son, no, just a minute. Daddy, just a minute. And his, his mind is so engrossed, his, he's amused. His mind is checked out. And what the boy wanted was reality. It was something really real. And what he was consumed by was totally his imagination. It wasn't even real. I think it was brother, I heard Brother Merle say this a number of years ago, that the Mennonites do better with abstinence and moderation, right? And it seems like this is one area where we have sort of caved into the abstinence approach, somewhat, I think, 
You know, we thought that when we said no television, and years ago maybe it was no radio, um, we thought that we, that we were taking an act. And by the way, I think we, we need a little more um, abstinence. <laughs> I think we've kind of went the road of moderation, saying, well, the abstinence, that's the old way. Let's do the new way, moderation and accountability. Let's do that. I think let's not put all the abstinence in the closet. That's my thought. But anyway, we thought that when we use the abstinence method of no television, you know, that's now been circumvented by the back door of the high-speed Internet. And we've been sort of forced into taking this new way of moderation. It's already among us. It's affecting us. And I think it's infecting us. You know, in our church covenant, it says something about the use of video. And even since that was written, there's a new way of, you know, getting with the high-speed Internet. You know, we had discussions about Internet way back in the beginning. I think we should have had another one when high-speed came along. Because <laughs> the difference between no Internet to Internet is not as much as from Internet to high-speed, I think. Anyway, <clears throat> Netflix. There's two young men that I'm trying to mentor right now. That You know, when they come home, you know what they do? When they come home from work, they medicate themselves. It's like a junkie getting his fix. That's what I mean by medication. We're medicating ourselves. Where the normal and what's, what's normal and what's really real somehow has no appeal to me. But what is imaginary, that I want. And I will medicate myself. Let me ask you. Are we affected by this? Vicarious imagination, vicarious fiction. Vicarious means experienced through somebody else rather than at first hand by using sympathy or the power of the imagination. Vicarious pleasure. Robbie Zacharias said this, Two of the most powerful forces in the world today are music and television. Music and the visual have the capacity to bypass reason and go straight for the imagination. The misuse of media dulls and kills spiritual appetite. The misuse of media dulls spiritual discernment. The misuse of media leads to a loss of vision where I, we can laugh and cry about things that aren't even real. And the stuff that is really real, our hearts are barely moved by that. Henry Blank said in his excellent article, Video in the Christian Mind, he said, I believe that the visual media, especially video and television, is one of the greatest enemies of the Christian mind that the church has ever faced. We are faced with this pressure. And it's not just out in the culture. It's in our houses. It's in our churches. Medication. <clears throat> Accumulation, decoration, medication. And the fourth one is fornication. I'm not going to say a whole lot about this one. It's the desire. It's, it's to satisfy in illegitimate ways legitimate desires. The, desire, the sexual desires that we are made with are legitimate. And, and they're God-given. God-created. But to... To, in an illegitimate way to satisfy that desire. <clears throat> Fornication. That's the itch. Somebody said one time that, oh, I forget the words exactly, the idea was that the, 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 um, the sexual drive of a human being is the second strongest drive we have next to the one for um, self-preservation. So if you would you know, be thrown out of a boat and, you're, and you don't know how to swim and you're sinking, and that drive you have right at that moment to you know, somehow get back to the surface to preserve your life, that's a very strong drive. This one is next door to that. The world has always fornicated. 
But what I am saying, what I'm concerned about is that our, our access and our exposure to temptation has increased dramatically. And I wonder how many men or women are already trapped and they're right in our churches. Trapped in moral failure. There's an ocean of pornography on the internet. The websites that are encouraging adultery like Ashley Madison. Many of you have probably heard about that. The Duggar man who got trapped in this thing. A website that would actually arrange for you to, to encourage you to commit adultery. And their slogan is, let's see, life is short have an affair. That's what's in the culture. And these things are pressing in upon us. Accumulation, decoration, medication, and fornication. Finally, I just want to point out three things that I see in this text. You know, If you were facing the pressure of, if you fell out of that boat, like I mentioned, and you were underwater, and you don't know how to swim, and you're holding your breath, this pressure is is upon you to open your mouth and take a breath. How long can you go before you're going to just open up and and, and take something in? You know, if that's the way it's going to be, if if there's no relief valve for these pressures, you know know what we're going to end up doing? We're going to open up our mouth and take in the water of of the world. But is there some oxygen tube that we could receive from the Lord that would come down under the water where we're facing all this pressure and here, you know, get a hold of this. If you get a hold of this, you will have the wherewithal to go, like it says in verse 14, keep this commandment without spot, unrebukable. Don't take in any water, not one bit of it. And how long? (laughs) Until you can't hold your breath anymore? No. Until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is how long we are supposed to stand against these pressures and not be infected. Affected. Can we do it? And I just see three things here. I just want to briefly go over these three. Maybe a sermon on themselves. It's the antidote to the pressures. We have to, we have to take in these antidotes. Somehow, so that we not be overwhelmed. The first one is to be godly. In in verse 6, it says, Godliness with contentment is great gain. And verse 11, flee these things, but follow after or pursue godliness. I believe that becoming godly is one is at the process of taking on the character and the priorities of Jesus. And as I take on the character of Jesus... I think that a natural fruit that flows out of that is I begin to develop a passion for the priorities of Jesus. The things that are real and that will last for eternity. Those things become priority to me as I take on his character. And I wonder sometimes if the reason we've not done so well, perhaps I don't know how well we've done, God knows. But the reason we've not done as well as we should, perhaps... We know about all these pressures, but I wonder if our failures are due to a low view of the kingdom. Like we, we view salvation as it's sort of a means to, uh, <clears throat> that's the, um, my, my initial salvation. Okay, now that's been accomplished. I, I don't have sin in my heart. I have peace in my heart. And now just go out and enjoy life. But the kingdom view says, no, your, your initial salvation is, it's a means to an end. Now you go to work for the kingdom of God. All the priorities you had, you're not your own. You're bought with a price. No. You take up the priorities of Jesus now with a passion. And don't try to save your life. Don't try to preserve your life. But you would be willing to lay down your life for the cause of the kingdom of God. And sometimes I think that's our problem. We don't have a high enough view of the kingdom. And, 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 and enough of a desire to reach out and accomplish the goals of the kingdom that are eternal. It's very hard to avoid the pull of the world if we don't feel the draw of the kingdom. We have to be godly. The second one is to be content. Um, I think that contentment flows out of godliness. When I really have 
um, when I really have, when Christ is my most valuable possession, then I can say, you know what? I don't, you're right. I don't have that. And I don't have that. And I don't have that, <clears throat> that much in my bank account. But what do I have? I have Jesus Christ. And he is my most valuable possession. I'm okay with that. <clears throat> you know, Jesus was not outstanding in his valuables, but in his values. One little goal that I have for myself, at least in our communities, can we at least, in our communities, I just think it's not right when we as the conservative, the plain people, can you imagine standing with your straight-cut suit on and on the front porch of that luxurious house and try to explain that to somebody who knows nothing about the gospel? Try to explain. You know what? It doesn't make sense. Let's be honest. <clears throat> if we elevate our standard of living above our neighbors in the communities that we live in, I think we put a barrier between the ability we have to testify to them. And we can say, well, you know, I have the liberty. My motive is pure. Wait a minute. What about the testimony? Don't you want all the barriers down as low as possible so you can speak into the lives of your neighbors? A contented Christian is more concerned about his testimony than his liberty. Jesus, I think, was nondescript. And this is my desire. I don't know. I told my church people last Sunday, I said, you guys tell me after church. I would like to be nondescript in the area of decoration in my in my personal appearance, my vehicles, my house, so that when I meet somebody new and somebody would ask them, hey, what kind of car is he driving? And they would say, you know what? I can't remember. No, I can't remember. But what I do remember is that man loved the Lord. That's how I would want to be remembered. And I just think whenever we, whenever we, when we're not content, we tend to decorate ourselves and our identity comes from these other things. And, 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 and you know what people remember about us? Those outstanding outer things about us. Be content. And number three, maybe the hardest one, be generous. I am not in verse 17. Here's my rendition of what that verse means or what it says. Do good. Do a lot of good. Be prepared to give away. Be willing to give away. I am not entitled to keep everything that comes to me just because I don't love it. I believe one of the primary ways to build up the kingdom of God is by strategically giving away money. I, wow, I, it's through the New Testament. It really is. And it, and it could be whatever resources we have. Money is one of the big ones. And that's what this chapter is talking about. <clears throat> How generous should we be? <laughs> I, I thought of this. What if, what if tomorrow morning we all woke up with an infection? And the infection was, you know what, honey? I woke up this morning and I just want to give away money. <laughs> I'm infected with this. I love it. I can't think of anything else I'd much more rather do. I mean, forget the four-wheeler and the, and the home in Florida. Forget that. I just would like to give away money. And, and, and your wife says, well, you know what, honey? I'm infected with that, too. We need to be really careful because we have to take care of our children. We need to, we need to give to the church. Uh, let's, you know, let's have balance in this. And, 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 the, and you say, yeah, yeah, that's right. We need to. That's right. So let's take care of our family. And maybe we need a little bit to set aside for this or that. But... You know, if we would have that infection, wouldn't it tell us where, where the line, where the boundaries of our generosity was supposed to be? I think it would become so obvious how much to give then and how much to keep. <laughs> think about that. <clears throat> Gary Miller says, we can waste time wondering just how much of the world's problems we are responsible to help with. Where is the boundary of my responsibility? That's the wrong question. Instead of asking, what should I be doing? It should be more, what can I be doing? What could I be doing? And I think if we would love to give away, <clears throat> we would just 
you know, these questions about, do you know, I bought, I bought this and, and then I bought that. And I wonder, I felt a little guilty when I, anybody ever have any guilty feelings about something you had or bought? Or, I mean, it's because we're not sure. If, was, it, was God really okay with that? I think if we could all wake up tomorrow morning with money giveaway itis, you know, we would we take care of a lot of those struggles. We know that God, you know, God is okay that you took your family out for supper last night because you're investing in your family and you're blessing them. And because I'm just asking God to birth that in me, birth more of that in me. And I have learned that you know when you invest in people financially, not that you're wanting to get something out of them, you're just giving it away with no strings attached somehow, or you're giving them some gift. It it, it opens hearts. God has given us these resources not to consume upon ourselves, but to invest, first of all, for the kingdom of God. Generosity. What if our slogan would be this? Earn as much as you can. Keep as little as you can. Give as much as you can. Would, that be, would there be scripture to support that? Whoa. What time is it? Okay. I'm just going to share, you can chew this one up and throw it out. One thought, as I, I've thought about these things, and I, I'm concerned about our own church. I love our church, but I, I do feel like sometimes I see what I feel like are little indications of some of these pressures are in our church. I don't know what to do about it. How much do you say or how much do you just pray? You know what I mean? And here's one little thought in regard to that. What if my church is infected? Or what if there's some kingdom opportunity that we ought to be reaching for and we're just, we're just going about our ordinary lives and we're not, we're not, you know, we're supposed to be infecting the culture like the salt of the earth. Like in a recipe, like a cake even has a little bit of salt in it, doesn't it? Or, or bread has a little bit of, of uh, yeast in it, right? But that little bit infects the whole thing. So whether infected from the world or to be affecting the culture, how could we be more effective in doing that? And as we discuss this as, as, as ministering brethren, I think we need to be together as pastors. Uh, I remember one time something happened in our church and somebody did something and I just right away I thought, oh, that's not good. So the next time we had a minister's meeting, I said to the brothers, I said, man, what do you guys think? I didn't think that was good. Should we talk to him? And the one brother said to me, well, Calvin, if you're concerned, you go right ahead and you go talk to him. And I'm like, whoa, no, no, no. And not, if we're, we need to be together on this, uh, I don't, I'm not going by myself as part of the team here. But anyway, these issues, <clears throat> we need to be together and not just championing our own, my own little cause aside from my other brothers that I'm working with. But, you know, we can sit in a meeting as, as pastors and we say, you know, what should we do about this? And, and my thought here is, what could we do to transfer that question to them, to, to our people. To where they would be saying, what can we do? I think as long as it's us saying that, if we're the only ones saying that as ministers, what can we do? We're going to struggle. Can we somehow shift that, the burden of that responsibility onto our people and, and have them thinking, man, what can we do? This is our problem. And I had to think of Acts 2 verse 37. After Peter preached that sermon... And it says, when they heard this, they were pricked in their hearts and said unto Peter, what did they say? They said, men and brethren, what shall we do? How could we? And I wonder if somehow we need to, we need to give some, maybe some more ownership to our people. I heard a brother say this. I'll just say this quickly. Um, <clears throat> brother Wilmer Funk from Pennsylvania. Maybe you don't agree with his hypothesis. But he said this. He gave an illustration of a, of a man that owned a business. And he, it was a good business. And he had a son that was helping him. The son was just a, a, just a goofball. And he was helping out in the store. And he, just, he was just there to collect paycheck from dad. And uh, <clears throat> one day, Wilma went into this place of business. And he goes up to the counter, not really looking up. And this young man steps up to the counter behind, on the other side and said, Can I help you, sir? And he looks up and here it was the son. He's like, man, something was obviously different here. What is going on? 
And so later he, he asked a few questions. It was such a marked difference. And he asked a few questions and somebody said, well, dad made the son a partner in the business. Ooh. When the son had ownership, all of a sudden he felt responsible for the outcome. And so that's, I'm thinking about that. How, could we do a better job as pastors that our people would, would, that we would give them more ownership maybe? Maybe that doesn't feel very safe. It's easier to just legislate from the top now. You know, just, just do as we're suggesting. But I think if we want them to feel more responsibility, maybe they need some more ownership. You can work that out. In closing, as I look through the New Testament, I see a principle of building the kingdom of God that works as an antidote against the pressures from the culture. And here is the principle. Giving away earthly resources in this life for the sake of eternal gain in the next. Jesus taught it when he said, Lay not up for yourselves treasures upon earth, but lay up treasures in heaven. Paul taught it when he said, Laying up in store for yourselves a good foundation against the time to come that they may lay hold on eternal life. And the early church practiced it when they sold their possessions for the good of the brotherhood in Acts chapter 2. What God asks of me may be different from what he's asking of you. But at some level, I think this is the golden key that will withstand the pressures from the culture to not be contaminated by the world and to be relevant to the kingdom of God. May God bless you all in your home congregations.